and we're going to be in verses 1 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Uh, the title of our lesson this morning is, It's Not About Being Right. It's not about being right. If you're here this morning, <clears throat> most people that come out this morning, I was coming through Crawfordville, and, and there's just boats left and right headed to the, to the water, you know, and, and I love to go. I, I love to fish and all that. But if you're here this morning on a Sunday morning, and you get up and you, and you come out to sit in a Bible study, it's probably because you really want to learn, because you don't have to be here. It's because you want to learn about God, right? I mean, I'm that way. I, I, I love it. I love learning more and more and more. It's like it's unending um, that I learn more about Him. But there's a real danger for people like you and I, and that is we'll learn a lot about God and forget that we need... We'll get, let me say it another way. We'll obtain a lot of knowledge about God and forget that it's supposed to be about knowing God. See, there's a big difference between knowing about God and knowing Him. I can go get a history book and I can read about George Washington or Martin Luther King or any other historical figure, and I can learn everything there is to know about them. I can learn when they were born, when they died, their, their childhood. I can learn about their parents. I, I can learn where they went to school. I can, I can get to a point, if I studied enough, I can tell you every fact about them, but I'll never know them. I'll never have a relationship with them. Well, see, the fact is, you, people can do that with God. You can learn about God. You can get in the Bible and learn, 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 but you never know Him. You never have a relationship with Him, and that's a real danger. In fact, there's some, sometimes I even ask myself, Derek, are you sure you're getting to know Him and not just knowing about Him? In other words, just having the knowledge is not enough. You can be right. You can have the right theology and right knowledge. It's not about that. It's about a relationship. It has to go beyond that. And so we're going to see that today and, and, and also in our next few lessons as well. So let's, let's dive in and see what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 has to say. So we've, we've said over the last several weeks that, you know, there were some people, obviously, when we looked at the first four, five, six chapters, there were some people in 1 Corinthians, the letter in the church, who were doing a whole lot of wrong. But there was also some people in the church, who sincere people, who wanted to do what was right. And so after Paul had left, they actually wrote him, we know at least one letter, possibly multiple letters, and they asked him questions, right? And we, we talked about that last week. Now chapter 7 is kind of beginning the section of the letter where Paul is answering these questions. And in chapter 7, of course, dealt with uh, marriage and celibacy. Now in chapter 8, he's going to start dealing with questions about meat offered to idols. Now... We see that in, in verse 1. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. By the way, he's not just pulling this out of thin air. right? Paul's just not saying, hey, let me just talk about meat offered to idols. He's, he's bringing it up because they ask a question about it. They had a specific question about what do we do in a certain situation. And so Paul says, okay, let's, let's turn to that particular question that you had. Now, it's easy. I don't know if y'all are like this. I hope you're not. But it's easy for us sometimes when we read the Bible and we'll come to a certain section in the Bible and, and Paul will say something now, like meat 
concerning meat offered to idols, and we'll think, well, you know what, that don't have anything to do with me. As far as I know, none of my friends here in Walcola County are worshiping idols or sacrificing chickens or anything like that, so it's really not relevant to me. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll skip that passage or we'll skim that passage very quickly, and we won't spend very much time in it because we think, well, you know, it doesn't really have anything uh, to do with me. But what we're going to see today and in actually the next few chapters is that these questions are extremely relevant for us. Because out of this question or out of this issue, we're going to draw a general principle that can be applied to any Christian in any age when they have to decide uh, you know, how to govern their behavior or what it is they, they need to do. In fact, in chapters 7 through 14, we're going to learn some tremendous things, some tremendous guidelines, some tremendous principles that will help us decide about gray areas in our life. Now, let me explain first, what do I mean by a gray area? Well, down throughout time, okay, down throughout history, in every age, in every lifetime, in every society, in every culture, there's always going to be questions that are not covered by the Bible. I was uh, reading a few things this week on this years ago. There was a time, and I don't know, you know, you might be, I guess, telling your age, but how many remember when there was a big uproar in Christian circles about whether women should wear pants? Right? You see, for years and years, women wore dresses and men wore pants, and then all of a sudden the styles changed. The culture, in the culture, women began to wear pants. Well, the Christians said, well, now, wait a minute. That's what the culture's doing. What about us? Can, Can we do that? Is it okay? I would probably dare say that today in this in this service, there'll be a woman who still can't wear, even though she knows there's really nothing wrong with it, she probably still cannot wear pants to church because it's just so, everybody with me? It's so ingrained in her, she she just can't bring herself to do it because that's how she was was raised. I was reading an article about a guy who said in his house on Sunday mornings, they couldn't read the funny papers. His dad was a preacher, and he said Sunday is supposed to be a solemn day. You don't, you don't read the funny papers. So he said they just all sat around wanting to read the funny papers. Right? <laughs> you know, you, can't, you don't do it on the outside, but in your heart, man, you can't wait to get to, those, to get to those funny papers. Should women wear makeup? Again, that was something the culture, years and years and years ago, the culture began to do. And, and Christian women asked, can we do that? Thank goodness that's been decided in the affirmative, right? And that's been decided. Can we go to movies or dances? Right? There's still Christians today. If there's a dance, man, should I go? Can I dance to secular music? Can I go and just stand there? See, these aren't things that are covered in the Bible. These are what we would call gray areas. Should I, can I smoke cigarettes or, or cigars? Can I fish or play ball or shop on Sunday? Can I drink beer or wine? You know, the Bible clearly tells us don't get drunk. That's a clear command. Somebody comes up and says, can I have a glass of wine for for dinner? Does the Bible say anything about it? Nope, not at all. There's nothing in there about that, okay? Uh, Coffee. Now, I drink coffee. I love coffee, but there are people out there who think, man, you know, coffee's got a stimulant in it. It's caffeine. Should Should Christians be doing that? Should Christians get tattoos? Should Christians be on Facebook? The questions just go on. These are what we call gray areas, okay? There's always going to be questions that we have that you just cannot find specifically in the Bible. And so these are the types of questions that down through the ages, Christians have debated and and wrestled and wrangled over. And the reason they've debated them 
is because, again, there is no clear commands in the Bible that speak specifically to those things. So the question would be, what do we do, right? Now, if we're honest, if we're all honest, we would love if the Bible had a nice list. We love lists. We love checklists. If the Bible would just tell me, do that, don't do that, do that, don't do that, then I could put that on my refrigerator, right? And every day I could look at it and say, Derek, don't do those things today, and you'll be right with God. But the, but the fact is, life isn't like that, right? In our lifetime and culture, just as in every lifetime and culture, there's always going to be what we call gray areas. There's going to be things that the Bible doesn't say they're right, and the Bible doesn't say they're wrong. It doesn't say anything about them. So the question as a Christian is, well, how do we decide? Yeah, how do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? How do we know what to do? Okay, are there any guidelines? Are there any principles that help us make decisions in those areas? Well, absolutely there are. In fact, there's several of them. Now, I'm going to give, this has nothing to do with a lesson, but I'm going to give you what I call the five E's. So if you're taking notes, I tried to do something here that would make it easy to remember. I don't think it's going to be that easy, but I call it the five E's. Number one is the principle of excess. This comes from Hebrews 12.1. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When you have a gray area question, one of the principles that you can ask yourself is this. If I do this, will it help me run the race better or is it going to be a weight that slows me down? Okay? That's a nice little principle. If I do this, is this going to be a weight that helps me run the race better? Now, I put a Facebook there and, um, and I did it for a reason. Um, now, I'm not on Facebook, and if I told you the reason why, I'd just offend you, so I'm not going to tell you why. No, really the reason I'm on there because I really don't care what you're doing, and I don't want you to know it's none of your business what, what I'm doing, so I just stay off of there. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just teasing. I really don't, don't care anything about Facebook. If you're on Facebook, that's fine. I don't care. I, but here's, here's why I put it up there. Several years ago, I was a youth pastor here, and I did it for about five years, and at the time, you know, all the kids were on Facebook. And they tell me now a lot of the kids are abandoning Facebook because all their parents are on Facebook, so they're all running to something else. But at the time, all the kids were on, on Facebook. And so I thought, well, you know what? I don't really care about Facebook. I don't want to be on Facebook. But maybe I need to get on Facebook. Maybe I need to get on there because that's how the kids communicate, and maybe I need to get in there with them and be on Facebook. So one of the questions, I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know, was that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? So one of the questions I asked myself was this. If, if I do this, if I get on the Facebook, is it going to help me be a better youth pastor? Right? I mean, that's what I said. Is it going to help me? Well, there was a couple problems when I thought, th thought it through. One of them is if you ever get on Facebook, and especially if you friend teenagers, t teenagers are pretty much just idiots nowadays. They'll just put anything out there, right? It, I mean, they're just, it's just like they grew up, they don't even know. We at least had enough sense to hide some things. They don't even, they, they got no sense at all. So they're just throwing things out there. So I thought, man, if I get out there, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I felt like I would see these things and get into these that I really didn't need to be in. Does that make sense? The other thing is I also saw some danger in it. There was a reason when I was a youth pastor, I didn't text 
the kids because there's danger in that, right? You, I just didn't want to go there, right? I can say to this day, to this day, I can stand up here before you and say, I've, have I, I've never offended anybody on Facebook. I've never posted anything on Facebook that would offend Jesus. I've never done anything that would, would, would garnish my witness on Facebook because I'm not on Facebook, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm just... Staying all, stay, I, I stayed away from it. So, so that's my, that was my thing. I just felt like it would be a weight that would hinder me as opposed to helping me, um, helping me as, a, as a youth pastor. Another one is expedience. We covered this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Right? Paul says, you want to do that? Go ahead. As far as the law goes, you can do whatever you want to do. But Paul says not everything is expedient. Not everything is profitable. Not everything is useful. When you come to a gray area, one of the things you can say is, if I do this, is it going to help me? Is it going to profit me? Is it going to make me a better man of God? Is it going to make me a better woman of God? Is this something that's going to increase my effectiveness as a Christian? Yes or no? That's a good guideline. That's a good principle to follow when you're deciding a gray area. The third E is what I call emulation. 1 John 4, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the way he walked. In other words, the old WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now that's a, you know, I remember years ago, they had the WWJD phase. Everybody remember that? And everybody was, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I never really bought into all that because, you know, I tried that for a while. What would Jesus do? But the, the, the problem with that one is, and you got that's why everything only goes so far. You know, if I sat down to watch, let's say, Andy Griffith, which is about as benign a TV show as you can possibly get, right? No, no sex, no drugs, no alcohol, no cursing, no nothing. If I asked the question, would Jesus sit down and watch Andy Griffith? I'd always say, well, no, he'd be out healing somebody, right? <laughs> He's not going to sit down and waste his time on Andy Griffith. He's going to be out helping somebody. So that, that only goes so far, right? I mean, you can't do that everything... But it's a good thing. What would Jesus do in this situation? Am I walking the way he walks? Um, the fourth E is evangelism. Colossians 4, 5, Paul says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. If I do this, how is it going to affect my witness? How, how will it affect how others see Jesus in me? How will it hurt my witness or help my witness to the outside, to the outside world? Okay? Um, and then the fifth one, of course, is exaltation. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, doesn't matter, do it all to the glory of God. If I do this, will it exalt Christ? If I do this, will it exalt Jesus in my, in my life? So those are some good guidelines and some good principles. Now, in today's chapter, Paul's going to add another one. And this one really encompasses all of the others, and that is the principle of love, Okay? Paul is going to show us that when you have to decide a gray area, that the real key to making that decision is the principle of love. That, that if I come to this, you have to ask the question, if I do this, how will it affect my Christian brother? How will it affect my Christian sister? And, and whatever is most loving toward them, that's what you should do. That's what he's going to tell us. It's in a nutshell in today's. Now, now don't miss what I just said. What Paul says is when you decide matters in a gray area, the overriding principle of love is not how does it affect me, it's how does it affect you. 
Now that's, that's kind of hard when you think about it, right? Because even all those other, the five E's really, how, you know, how does this make me look? How does this weigh me down? Right? But this one says, no, the overriding principle, even beyond those, is how does that affect your Christian brother or sister? That's the principle of, of love. Now, before we get to the passage about, remember, the whole passage is about meat offered to idols. So let me give you a little background before we get started so we kind of understand the question that's being asked. Now, Corinth, the city of Corinth, of course, was part of the Roman Empire, but they were also very influenced by Greek culture. Um, and, and the Greeks and the Romans were what we call polytheistic as opposed to monotheistic. Polytheistic means they worship multiple gods. Now, when you go back and read, and I've read several books on Greco-Roman culture, that it would blow your mind how religious they were. Now, they worshiped false gods, okay? But they were extremely religious. Every single thing in their lives revolved around the worship of some deity. If, if they had a feast or a dinner, it, it, it was built around some false god. If they went to a sporting event, there was, there was a, it was dedicated to a god. It, it didn't matter if it was love, justice, fertility, harvest, marriage. They had gods for, every, for absolutely everything. Everything involved a god. For example, if you went to a marriage ceremony, it involved a god. If you went to a sporting event, it involved a god. If you went to a, a dinner, it would involve a god. Now, by the way, stop right there for just a second. We can understand this. For example... If you come to a marriage that I do, guess what? It's going to be all about God. Is it not? If you come to a sporting event that I'm involved in and I've got any say in it at all, guess what we're going to do before we start? We're going to pray to God. If you come to dinner at my house, guess what we're going to do before we eat? We're going to ask God to bless the food and the fellowship, right? We do the same thing today. If, we, if at all possible, we involve God in everything that we do. Well, that's what they did. They just were worshiping false gods, not the true God. Every aspect of their life included the deities that worship. The interesting thing, when you go back to the Roman writings and you read about what the Romans wrote about Christians, did you know what Romans called Christians? Atheists. They called them atheists. Why? Because they didn't worship their gods. So you'll see those atheists, those atheists are doing this. I mean, they don't, you know, you can say a lot of things about the Greco-Roman culture, but they, they were extremely, extremely religious. In fact, probably more religious even than, than the, our culture here in, in America. Super religious. Now, the worship of these gods involved food in at least three ways that I can think about or I can find. Number one, they would actually go to the temple and they would sacrifice animals to their gods. So it could have been Apollo, it could have been Zeus, it could have been Athena or Aphrodite. They would actually take a lamb or a chicken or a pigeon or something, go to the temple and sacrifice it. And what would happen is when the priest had sacrificed that animal, the priest would either keep all or part of the animal back for themselves. That's how they supported themselves. So let's say I, I, I take a little lamb... I go down to the temple, the priest sacrifices, maybe they, they quarter it or half it, and the priest keeps half and I keep half, and the priest would take his half and he'd go to the market and he'd sell it and get money for it. 
And that's how they would support themselves, and that's how they supported the temple. By the way, it's exactly what the Jews did. If you ever go back to the Old Testament and study the Jews, when the Israelites brought their sacrifice to the temple, the Jewish priests would keep part of it, and that's how they supported themselves. They had to eat. They had to make, you know, they had, they had you know, to make a living as well, and so they would keep part of the sacrifices. The, the Greeks and the Romans did exactly the, the same thing. So again, these priests would go sell this animal that had been sacrificed to these false gods, they would sell it at the marketplace, and then the marketplace, of course, would turn right around and sell it again. A second way that foods and gods were connected is that before you ate in the Greek-Roman culture, you would always offer your food to the gods. And they did this for a reason. Not only did the Greco-Romans believe in a lot of gods, they believed demons were everywhere. They, they believed evil spirits were everywhere, and they believed these evil spirits were constantly trying to get inside of you. They were constantly trying to inhabit you or possess you. And one of the ways they believed they did that was they would light on your food. So if you had food just sitting out there, the demon would get on it, and then if you ate it, the demon could get inside of you. So what they would do is any time before they ate, they would offer that food up to their God, and that, in effect, would cleanse it and get rid of the demons so you could, could eat it. That, that, was, that was just what they believed. A third way was that many social events, we, we mentioned marriages, uh, social dinners, feasts, and things like that, were held at the temple in honor of some god. There was a papyrus that was found several hundred years ago, and it was a, a, a little script of paper, and it was a dinner invitation. When, when they found it, they thought, well, we found some important government document or something like that. It ended up being a dinner invitation. And it actually said this, uh, Antonius, the son of Potalamus, invites you to dine with him at the table of our Lord Serapis. Now, Serapis was a god. Okay, It was one of their false gods. So what this person was doing, this man named Antonius, is he was having a dinner at the temple in honor of this false god Serapis. And so he, sent, he sends out dinner invitations to all his friends and says, hey, come join me in honor of this, of this false god. Now, here's the question. If you were invited to that, let's say you were one of Antonius' friends and you were a Christian, and he says, hey, come to this dinner, what do you do? Do you go? Do you, do you not go? You see, in the end, almost everything you ate had either been offered to a god, sacrificed to a god, or eaten to celebrate some God. As a Christian, you could not avoid it. If you went to the local Winn-Dixie, there was a good chance that the meat that was there, sitting there to buy, had been offered to some false God. If you went to a friend's house for dinner, there was a fairly good chance that he was going to pray to some false God to bless the food. If you were invited to a marriage or a social event or a sporting event, those things were going to be in honor of some false god. You could not get away from it. That, that was just the culture. So you can see these questions begin to, man, what are we supposed to do? Right? How, how am I supposed to live in this culture? See, the weddings and the festivals that were connected with family life were almost always held at the temple and always had meats offered to some false god. What if your sister, who you love dearly, was a pagan and you had been saved and she's getting married and she invites you to her wedding and at that wedding they're going to they're going to they're going to uh, you know be in honor of, they're going to call on the blessings of what do you do the other day you know i mean just ask the question you know do you go and fellowship with those people and maybe you're sitting over there with one of your uncles and you share Christ with him 
Do Christians just pull themselves apart into a monastic lifestyle and become vegetarians? I mean, is everybody with me? You, you can see these questions, these were big deals back then. The other day, I was reading an article on one of the Christian websites, and a, a man was writing an editorial. And I, I can't remember if it was his sister or his daughter. I can't remember which one. But his sister or daughter was a homosexual, and she was getting married, and she had invited him to the wedding. Now, it's either his sister or his daughter. And this man is writing, and he says, You know what? I love her. She's my daughter. I, again, I can't remember. Daughter, sister, one or the other. I love her with all my heart. So part of me wants to be there. The other part says, No. What do you do? Right? See, folks, the, the issues might change. You know, the specifics might change from culture to culture, but underneath, it's the exact same question. It's the exact same thing. What do we do? This is always going to change. You know, the next generation may have something else. We have to make those decisions. You see, in the end, we're no different than those Christians were 2,000 years ago. You see, what they were trying to decide, now listen to me closely here. See, they were trying to figure out, can we do the things the world is doing? The, the women in the world are wearing pants. Can we do that? The women in the world are wearing makeup. Can we do that? The, the culture is going to dances. Can we do that? The, the culture has a glass of wine with dinner. Can I do that? Everybody with me? See, we, we look at what the culture's doing and we ask ourselves, can I do that? And by the way, the Bible doesn't say anything about it. See, we're trying to find out the exact same things those people 2,000 years were trying to decide. The culture's doing all these things. Can I do those things or can I not? You see, we're trying to find out whether we ought to play or work on Sunday or drink booze or smoke or go to movies or dance or attend a gay marriage because those are the things our culture's doing. And the Bible, again, doesn't specifically address those things, so we have to make a decision. Now, when this happens, when we have to decide, Christians many times will debate. By the way, with that, the other day on that Christian website, the, the comments, I always like to read the comments, right? And somebody comments and says, well, sure you go. And another Christian said, no, you don't go. You see, there's always going to be differences of opinions. And, and, and we actually may wind up coming to different conclusions. And, and by the way, that's exactly what happened at the church at Corinth. The question was, if, I go, if, if there's meat that's been offered to idols, can I eat it? Yes or no? And the church at Corinth began to debate that. And they actually came to two different conclusions. There was a group in the church that said, no, you do not eat it. And there was a group in the church that said, yeah, man, go ahead, that's fine. Okay? See, there was this group in the church at Corinth who were new Christians. And, and I want you to try to put yourself for just a second in their place, if you will. They have just come out of this background. Their whole life has been in this culture, this Greco-Roman culture that, that worships false gods. You see, they had once been the ones that took their sacrifice to the temple. They had been the ones who believed that demons lighted on your food and they had offered their food to false god. They grew up with that. They had done that since they were a toddler. And maybe some of them were in their 20s and 30s and 40s and maybe 50s when they got saved. Their whole life had been geared around this worship of false gods and this, this, this connection between your food and idols. And you see, many of them were still affected by this way of thinking. 
let me stop right here for just a second. I said this earlier. There will probably be someone, there's probably a woman in church today, and it might be an older woman, who still, I said this earlier, who still cannot wear pants to church because they were raised a certain way. Now, in their mind, they know wearing pants is nothing. Right? You're not better off with God if you wear pants. You're not worse off if you don't wear them. God, it doesn't have anything to do with your relationship. They know that in their mind. So why can't they do it? Because see, in their conscience, their conscience was so geared over the years to react a certain way, it's hard to turn away from that. Does, does everybody, everybody understand that? And I don't know how many of y'all deal with There may be some of y'all here today that deal with the same thing. You were so trained to do certain things or not do certain things as a child. And, and you've done them, done them, done them. You know, over the years you've acted a certain way. And then all of a sudden you come into freedom. And somebody teaches you the word. And you realize, man, that thing is nothing. That means absolutely nothing. But yet you can't stop doing it or start doing it. Because your conscience over the years is so true. Everybody with me? That's exactly what was happening in the church at Corinth. These people were so geared that food was connected to idols that even though in their mind, you see, even though in their mind they knew that false gods were nothing, they knew they really didn't exist, they knew that, right? Yet in their conscience they said, man, I can't eat that. That food's been offered to a false god. That, if I eat that food, that would be like worship. Even though they know in their mind it's, it's nothing, their conscience is still tender. Their conscience hasn't been changed yet. It hasn't been set free yet because they're, because they're new Christians. But on the other side, you had these more knowledgeable Christians, more mature Christians. And, and they felt like this. They said, look, guys, that idol is a piece of wood. That idol is a piece of metal. It is absolutely nothing. It, it, eat the food. What difference does it make? And by the way, you ask the question, who's right and who's wrong? Well, the second guys were right. Idols are nothing. They're just pieces of wood. What, that, food is, that food don't have any demons on it. See, they were right. So Paul is going to address this whole principle and this whole situation. I'm sorry, he's going to address this whole question, this whole issue, and he's going to give them a principle to follow. And here's the principle. It's not about being right. It's about being loving. Now, I, put a, you, you, I say that, and everybody smiles, because why is there a picture of a toilet paper roll up there? Okay. <laughs> So, so a few weeks ago, I was telling Kathy about this. I'm riding down the road, and I'm always trying to find something Christian to listen to. And I ran across this Christian marriage counselor. So he was telling a story about a man and a woman who came to him for counseling. And they had some issues because they always both wanted to be right. Okay? And so he said, well, give me an example of, of things that you'll argue about. And so the man says, well, let me tell you something. Let me, let me give you a story. He says, whenever we argue, my wife makes these blanket statements. She likes to use the word never. You never do this, right? So one of the statements she said was, you never change the toilet paper roll. It gets to the end, I'm always the one that has to do it, you never do it. And the man would say, well, that is an absolute, that's just wrong. I do change it. No, you don't. So he decides he's going to prove her wrong. So what he does is over the next few months, every time he changed a toilet paper roll, he would take it and put it in a bag at the back of the closet and save it. Okay? So as the weeks and months went by, he, he gets this bag full of stuff, right? So one day, several, you know, several period of time has passed. One day, 
they get in an argument, and she breaks out the never. You never change the toilet paper roll. He said, wait right here. And so, <laughs> so he goes and gets that bag and comes back, and he dumps those rolls out in front of her, right? And I think she said something like, you're just sick or, or something like that. The, the counselor's point was, if you try to go through a marriage and it's all about being right, First of all, that, that marriage is not going to be successful, and you're going to be one miserable human being. In other words, it's not about being right. Just change the toilet paper roll and move on. It's not about being right. If you make everything about being right, you've completely missed the point of the whole thing. That's what Paul's going to say today. That's exactly what Paul's going to say. You see, today's passage is directed toward those of us who have our facts right and our hearts are wrong. Our theology is right, but our hearts are wrong. There is completely. It's going to address people that technically, they are right. They're saying the exact right thing, but they're wrong because their heart's in the wrong place. And let's go through this real quickly. 1 Corinthians 8.1. Paul says this, Now concerning food offered to all idols, and then he says something really odd. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Now I want you to know something do you notice that all of us possess knowledge is in quotes? Everybody see that? What Paul is doing is he's quoting those mature Christians from the letter. See, they wrote a letter and they said, Hey, Paul, we got this issue. People don't want to eat meat, but we know all of us possess knowledge. They should just go ahead and do it, right? So they're telling Paul their reasons why you should do it. Now, what do they mean? by all of us possess knowledge. Well, I'm going to make this really easy for you. Have you ever been on a, as a kid, you're on a playground, and you tell a friend something, like a statement of fact, and they say something like, no, duh. <laughs> Everybody with me? When that kid says, no, duh, what do they mean? Everybody knows that, you idiot, right? That's what they're saying. Everybody knows that. Folks, that's exactly what those Christians were saying. When they say we all possess knowledge, what they're saying is everybody knows idols are nothing. Everybody knows there's only one real God. Everybody knows that food can't defile you. Everybody knows it's not what goes in your body that defiles a man. It's what that comes out. Everybody knows that. That's common knowledge. Everybody with me? That's, that's what they're saying. Everybody knows that. No duh, right? And here's the thing. Paul agrees with them. See, he says, you know what? You're right. Technically, your knowledge is correct. Your theology is correct. In fact, he's a, he goes on in verses 4 through 8 to say that. Let me read it. He says, therefore, as the offering of uh, eating of food offered to idols, Paul says, we know an idol has no real existence. We know there's no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, Indeed, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, Paul says, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And in verse 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. We're not no worse off if we eat it, and we're not any better off if we do. Food means absolutely nothing when it comes to your relationship with God, nothing. You're not better off if you eat it, you're not better off if you don't. Food means that. Paul says you're exactly right. Paul says your theology is spot on. Your, your knowledge is dead on correct. That's what Paul's saying. You're exactly right. Now, stop right there for just a second. I want to talk about knowledge for just a minute. 
Knowledge, you, we're all here this morning to learn more about God, are we not? Knowledge is a good thing. In fact, knowledge is essential. Knowledge is critical. Knowledge is required. We should do everything we can within our power to learn more and more truth. We should read our Bible, study the, our Bible, talk with our friends about it. We should be constantly learning about God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, said this, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which should ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. Let me tell you, you, you that, that world is full of knowledge out there. You can learn stuff about nothing. But when you come in here, you learn the most important knowledge you'll ever gain. It will make you a better parent. It'll make you a better father. It'll make you a better mother. It'll make you a better wife. It'll make you a better husband. It'll make you a better person. It'll change your life, what you're doing here today. That's what J.I. Packer said. There's, there's nothing more loftier than knowing about God. And by the way, this is all over the Bible. Uh, Colossians 1.9, Paul says, We've not ceased to pray for you that you would increase in knowledge. Romans 12.2 says we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Don't be ignorant. Don't, don't be without knowledge. Learn, learn. He tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible tells us gain knowledge, gain knowledge, gain knowledge. See, knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. Listen, if you disregard the study of God, you will sentence yourself to go through life literally blindfolded. People that don't study the Word of God literally are just going through life just bumping. In. They bump into this and it goes this way. and they, bump, they, they got no idea where they're going. They got no idea what's going on. They just stumble and bumble. Anybody know anybody like that? They just stumble and bumble through because they got no guidance, man, at all. They don't know where they're going. They don't know where the road is. Okay, so knowledge is incredibly important. But listen to me, knowledge is not enough. Knowledge is not enough. Paul will go on in 1 Corinthians 13, 2 to give us one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And he says this, If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, if I know, Paul says, if I know everything there is to know about everything, but I don't have love, I am absolutely nothing. I've amounted to nothing. You see, you can be brilliant when it comes to theology and the Word of God, and you can be absolutely worthless. That's what Paul says. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm worthless. It's like a great... I saw a story the other day on something else. It'd be like a great basketball player. Let's say you had a basketball player who could never miss a shot. Everything he hit, but he always shoots in the other team's basket. Right? And, and so he comes in today, he says, man, I was 10 for 10 today. But his team is saying, dude, you're killing us. Right? You're shooting in the other guy's basket. But he says, yeah, but I, was, I didn't miss. Technically, he's right. Technically, he was 10 for 10. Technically, his theology is dead on. He was right. He didn't miss. But he's killing the team. He's killing them. See, that's the kind of attitude Paul is confronting here. You might be brilliant. You might have all this knowledge, but you're killing our team. You're not building up the weaker brothers and sisters. You're not helping them. All you care about is being right. Okay? See, a knowledge like that is useless. Look at verse 1 again. Paul says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, right? We all know idols are nothing. 
We all know there's only one God. We know food can't change anything. And then Paul says, this knowledge that you know puffs up, but love builds up. We go fishing on the flat sometimes, and anybody that does that, sometimes you catch those puffer fish. Everybody ever caught a puffer fish? You know, and they're only about this big, and then you catch them and pull them out of the water, and they blow themselves up with air, and they're, there's these, they, they get to be this huge, scary-looking thing, and you got all these grown men in a boat. Nobody will touch them. You know, they're all hitting it with a, get off of there, right? I ain't touching that thing, right? See, what knowledge does, what that puffer fish does is he blows himself up with air, so he seems like something he's really not. See, that's what knowledge does. When all you have is knowledge, when all you have is head knowledge, it makes you seem like something you're really not. It makes you think, in fact, you're more than you really are. See, Paul goes on in verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You see, these Christians who thought they knew it all, they forgot the first thing. I've told this story before years ago. I heard Bobby Bowden tell this story of when he was a boy. He said um, he, he, uh, he got up and, he, and he, he was playing baseball and he hit a, hit a line drive in the gap. So he, he, goes, he, he runs to first and he rounds second and he rounds third and it's a close play at the plate and he slides into home plate and it's an inside the park home run. And, his, and his, he said he jumps up. He said he's just so happy. You know, he's just... But he noticed something was wrong. Nobody was coming to congratulate him. And they, he said the pitcher got the ball, stepped on the mound, threw it at the first base, and the umpire says, you're out. Because he ste- didn't step on first base. And he said, and what he was telling, what he was telling these young people as he was speaking was, you can go through life and accomplish all these things. But what he, his point was, a relationship with God is first base. If you miss first base, you ain't done nothing. Well, folks, in, a, in essence, that's the way knowledge is. The basis, knowledge is meant to be used in the service of love. If you're gaining all this knowledge and all this knowledge and all this knowledge and at the end of your life you got all that and you miss love, you miss first base. You're at, all you did was absolutely nothing. It means nothing. That's what Paul is, is saying right here. It's like a school bully who imagines that he's the hero because he's taller than everybody else and he's stronger than everybody else and he's bigger than everybody else. So he bullies people. But the fact is, if he were a real hero, he wouldn't bully people. He would help. He would protect. He would serve, right? Because that's what the real heroes do. And Paul, in the same way, Paul is saying that if you were really knowledgeable like you think you are, you would use that knowledge to help people, to strengthen people, to protect people, to care for people, not to tear people down, not, not to put people down and put them in their place, not to say, no, duh, like you know more than they do. That, that, what kind of attitude is, is that? You see, that's true knowledge in God's eyes. When a person takes their knowledge and they balance that against the needs of others, right? that is a person who really gets it. That is a person who, who really knows. Now, to make his point, Paul is going to add one very simple, almost seems like it's out of place, but it's a very simple and profound statement. In verse 3 he said this, but if anyone loves God... He is known by God. Now, the point here is the power and the necessity of love. Paul does not say, if you know a bunch of information about God, then you're known by God. 
Then you're, and by the way, when, you, when it says you are known by God, that means you're in a relationship with Him. Right? Y'all remember the story in, in, in the Gospels where Jesus tells the parable of all the people that get to heaven and they say, we did this and we did that. And Jesus said what? I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Listen, you better be known by God, not just know about Him. See, Paul doesn't say if you know enough information about God, then you're known by Him. Paul says if you love God, then you are known by Him. You see, you can know a lot about God without knowing Him at all. Knowing about Him is not the same as knowing Him and being known by Him. To really know God, you have to love Him. Okay? And when you love God, when you don't just know facts about Him, you don't merely understand truths about Him, that's what creates the relationship. You see, love ends up being the key. Now, I want to go back real quickly. I've got about one more minute. 1 Corinthians 13, 2. Paul said this, and we already read this one time. I'll read it one more time. If I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries, and I have all knowledge, I know everything there is to know, and if I have all faith so I can move mountains... But I don't have love. I am nothing. Now, have you ever asked the question, why? why? Why would you say that, Paul? Why is love that important? Why are you, why, if you have all that other stuff and you don't have love, you're nothing? Because knowledge always terminate, terminates at me. It stops right there and goes no further. But love always terminates at you. Everybody see that? That's the, that's the difference. Knowledge alone puffs me up. It accomplishes nothing because it goes nowhere. But when I combine that knowledge with love, that actually builds people up because love reaches out and cares about you and strengthens you and protects you and serves you. That's exactly what Jesus did for us, and that's exactly what He expects us to do for one another. Philippians 1.9, Paul makes this statement, This I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge. Notice your love abounds in knowledge. You don't start with knowledge and add love. But listen, if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake lovingly. Right? If you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake, just, just love too much. I, I care, when we get to heaven, we'll never have perfect knowledge. But I can tell you, Jesus will never chastise us for loving too much. You think? I don't think he'll say, man, you, Derek, you just love too much. Just like I don't think he'll ever get to heaven and say, you gave me too much credit. <laughs> I cannot give him enough credit, right? So knowledge is great. It's critical. It's needed. It's required. It's useful. It's all those things. But knowledge has to be combined with love or it's absolutely useless. So when we get to a point where we have a gray area, the question we ask is, if I do this, how will it affect my brother? If I do this, how will my sister's conscience react to it? You see, when you're asking those questions, then you're really operating on a basis of love and that is true knowledge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 1 Corinthians 8. We thank you for, these, for the principle of love that helps us in these gray areas. I pray this morning that if there's anyone here this morning that is having some questions about gray areas in their life, they've got some decisions that they need to make, then Father, I just pray that this, this principle of love this morning will be their guiding guideline, their guiding principle as they make this decision. Uh, Lord, we pray for the service this morning. Uh, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, uh, God, open their eyes this morning. Stop the blundering and the blindfold and stumbling and all that, Lord. Open their eyes so they can see you. We ask that in Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Thank you all.